Well, it is early September, which to me means one thing. This is the week when football starts. This is it, guys. This is it. And even when I was a, uh, in school, uh, this was around the time of year where we started playing our first games. Did, how many of you just by show of hands played sports when you were in high school? Not everybody did, but lots of folks did, yeah. Lots of hands going up. And you might remember how and before that first game, the coach would get you guys all together and would give some sort of a, a harangue, right? Some sort of a, <laughs> let guys remember everything I've been taught, we're a team, and all, go through all the stuff that makes that effort cohesive, right? The coach would try and give like a pregame speech. And I kind of feel that way every fall, right? We've, uh, and this year it feels especially so, because this past year was, to put a word on it, strange, right? And things are still quite strange. Um, and we're still living in the midst of some really strange, difficult times with the pandemic and the Delta variant and all these things that are going on. We all feel the strangeness of it. Uh, but we are heading into the fall. We're heading into another season of ministry. And always, you know, in summertime, when I first came here, everybody said, you know, you just need to learn how life works in Aristic County. We try not to schedule too much in the summers. That's just how it works up here. It's a brief season. Everybody's got stuff they're trying to do. But we're kind of coming out of the summer now. And it's time for us to think about our game plan going into the fall. That's what we want to do this morning. And I thought what, the way we would do this is we need to go back and do some introductory review of where we've been as a church having a conversation. Uh, here at State Road, we have been called and set apart by God for the purpose of winning disciples and growing as disciples of Jesus. This is really and truly what we exist to do, to win souls and to be true-hearted, true from-the-heart, sincere followers of Jesus personally as we go about doing that. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we find a passage of Scripture commonly called the Great Commission, which gives churches like ours our marching orders. Jesus said this, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit,' teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There it is. That's our order. Go and make disciples. That word disciple isn't much used outside of Christian circles. And can't, in fact, I can't think of a time when I heard it just used in casual English, like around the office or something, but a disciple is pretty much just one of those churchy-sounding words. It's a word we find in the Bible, and it means a fully committed follower, a sincere from the heart imitator, in our case, of Jesus. And the way we go about making disciples here at State Road is by emphasizing those things which Jesus commanded in his teachings and modeled for us during the days of his earthly ministry. And we've summarized and boiled those things down into three representative statements. A disciple of Jesus, a fully committed Sincere, from the heart, follower of Jesus is somebody who loves God, who loves others, and who loves in action. We did not invent these three statements. I did not arrive upon them because I read a book or because I listened to a podcast or anything like that. That's not where any of this comes from. These three statements have been mined from a biblical ore. 
In the Great Commission, which I just read, Jesus charged disciples to teach new disciples all that he had commanded. And you might remember something that Jesus once said about the commands of God. In Matthew 22, in response to a question he, that had been posed to him, that question was, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus himself said this in response. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first, the great and first commandment. So the very first commandment is love God. And the second is like it, Jesus said. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love others. On these two commandments, Jesus said, depend all the law and the prophets. Or your version might say that all of the law and the prophets hang off of these two commandments. There it is. All of God's revelation to mankind down through the ages, all of his commands, the law, the prophet, all 66 books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation can be summed up in these three representative ideas, loving God, loving others, and love in action. And some of you might say, well, I didn't hear Jesus say anything about action, and that's true. But we might ask, and we'll get to this later on, I think that this is just something that Jesus implies, but which we need to make explicit. For example, in 1 John 3.18, God says through the inspired pen of John, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Biblical love always finds expression in concrete action. It's never just a feeling or never just words. Biblical love is always one that finds expression in what we do, in how we live. And so, yeah, we want to make that explicit with our third statement, which is love in action. Now, we last talked about loving God, loving others, and loving in action in a focused, sustained, and detailed way all the way back in 2019. And that was a different world, wasn't it, in 2019 when we last had this conversation. A lot has happened since then. A lot has happened in the world. A lot has happened in our church, and a lot has happened in each of our lives individually. However, something has not changed, and that is the centrality of these three ideas to what it means for us to be followers of Jesus and makers of disciples here at State Road. And as we head into the fall, I thought it would be good and hopefully also helpful for us as a church to spend a number of Sundays reconnecting with these ideas. Here at State Road, uh, we love to celebrate our amazing God. This has been true since I first came here. You guys are just the people who love to get together and celebrate how excellent and good and satisfying God is. And we seek to express our love for God at all times, but while we as God's people can worship Him in rich and meaningful ways anytime, anywhere, there is something special and unique that takes place when we come together to worship him collectively here as a gathered fellowship of believers. We love God together. That's something that's true about State Road and something I really appreciate about you as a people. We really do place great value on our shared worship times together. However, our testimony as a church before the community we live in is not that of a people who gather together in a place for a prepared service once a week. The testimony of our church before the community we live in is that of a family that loves one another as Jesus Christ loved us. 
And the way that that finds concrete expression in the life of a fellowship like ours is a much bigger vision than a people who gather together into a room once a week and pray. That's, and, and worship, sing songs, and listen to a message. That's, there's a much bigger idea involved in loving one another. And that's really important that the way we love the surrounding community is that the love we, we want to extend an invitation to non-believers to is a reality within our fellowship. And so, yeah, in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about loving God, loving God together. We're going to talk about loving one another And the way that that spills over as a blessing, as a a way of expressing love to the lost who surround us in the surrounding communities. And it is also true that biblical love is never just a feeling or words. Biblical love finds its ultimate expression in the things we do. It's a love that does. Biblical love is always active. And State Road really is a community of Christians with many God-given gifts, talents, and abilities. And God is glorified and his love is made real when you, as God's people, use those gifts for the good of others, not only within, but also when we seek to reach the lost outside of our fellowship through the the joyous exercise of our gifts. That's who we are as a people, loving God, loving others, love in action. Now, the hard thing about teaching on these three separate ideas or statements is that really, in practice, They can't be separated out. Uh, There is some irreducible complexity in holding these three ideas together at the same time. Irreducible complexity is a term that's kind of come into the lexicon, uh, the English language, as a result of uh, creationism. Uh, People who make an argument that God created the world. They point at certain things that are irreducibly complex. In other words, they couldn't have evolved to this point because they were created with irreducible complexity. If you have, like think of a mousetrap. It has the board, it has the spring, and it has the, the whacker. <laughs> if you take away any of those three components, you don't have a functioning trap anymore. It's irreducibly complex. It is made with the barest essential parts necessary. And if you take away any of those three parts, the neck breaker, the spring, the wooden board underneath, it ceases to be a functioning trap. And when we talk about these three ideas, loving God, loving others, love in action, there is some irreducible complexity to that. Michael Bay defined this as this, a single system which is composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute to the basic function and where the removal of any one of the parts causes the system to effectively cease functioning. And one thing we have to know when we talk about these three statements is that you cannot, you cannot separate a love for God from a love for others. You just can't do it. And God makes this explicitly clear in the book of 1 John, which we're going to be studying. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's what it says. The two go together. And biblically, love is always active. It's always finding expression in what we do. Again, 1 John 3.18, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The two go together. All these things go together. Loving God, loving others, love and action are so intertwined, it is almost impossible to talk about one to the exclusion of the other two. They are just a big intertwined ball of truth. 
But even so, we have to observe that people have tried in the way they live out their convictions to separate these things out. For example, uh, I haven't known a lot of folks like this or a lot of churches like this, but they, they do exist where people try to only love God. Just think of a church where pe- the people did not love one another within the church or the lost outside. Cert- certainly, such a church that tried to embrace a love for God but not for others would be marked not by the loving, gracious community that Jesus fostered, but with a harsh legalistic religiosity. I think the Pharisees in the Bible were people who tried to love God while not taking seriously the commands of God to love their neighbors as themselves. And it didn't work. Uh, This church would be an unsafe place. It would become a stage for human posturing. It would be dry, flavorless, and only on Sunday mornings. Or it might lead to absolutely nothing. Because if somebody tries to love God but not love actively, not love people, then it's clear that they don't really love God for who he is. They have invented a God that is more to their liking. They might even call this fabricated God of theirs Jesus, but he won't look anything like the Jesus we encounter in the Bible. He is likely a permissive God who conveniently requires nothing of them. Such a person might think, I don't need to involve myself with the church too much or read God's word or take seriously sin in my life. God and I have an understanding. We get each other. (laughs) Have you ever encountered this line of thought? These are people who rarely go to church, who rarely spend time in God's word, but who say they enjoy communion with God up a deer stand or out in the garden or riding back roads. The only problem is that their understanding of God has not been shaped by what God has actually revealed in his word. It's their own idea of God. And this God would never ask them to do something they don't want to do, so they never love others or love actively in the way the Bible calls us to, a way that is radical, sacrificial, costly, active. I've also known people who only love others. Uh, I'm not saying I've known a lot of these people. Again, my view of the church is very rosy. (laughs) I grew up in the church, and I think for the most part, Christians mean it. The vast majority of Christians that I have lived amongst uh, really sincerely, imperfectly, but sincerely try to live out these three statements. But I'm willing to bet you've known people like this I'm about to describe. People sometimes come to church, and they love their church. They are enthusiastic about the friendships they've formed there, but they cannot remember the last time they got alone with God in prayer or spent a few quiet moments with God and his word. And their sins are only a problem if their church friends find out about them. But as long as they can keep their sins hidden away from the church, they're no big deal, really. Doesn't God know about the hidden sin? Well, of course, but that's not what matters to this person most. This is a person who loves others, but not God, really. For them, church and the Christian life is all about a love that terminates on people. Church becomes a social club. It's a community that is not founded upon and shaped by a common love for God. It's just a gathering with people that they like. And that's less than what the Bible calls us to. 
I've also known some people who try to divorce the active part from really a love for God or a love for others. Some people are very active in service. I think this is one of the strengths of the region that we live in here in the county. Isn't this a place where people just help one another, whether they're in a church somewhere or not? There is a strong spirit of volunteerism here in the county. People will show up and help in a community effort. They really will. It's a wonderful thing. It's a great place to live. We have wonderful neighbors. But what God is calling us to is something different than that. Some people, again, very active in service, but service that doesn't flow from a love for God and which doesn't support a kingdom purpose is just do-goodism. It's good, but it's less than what we're going to be talking about. And I think I've known churches that have replaced Christian service with do-goodism. They build playgrounds, community gardens, they circulate petitions in support of social action, and so forth. But there is little or no talk in some of these churches of Jesus as Lord, or how a person can be saved, or the seriousness of a person's sin which separates them from God. I think that some Christians and churches have gone this way because it is inoffensive to the surrounding culture. I think Satan is eager to make a deal with the church today. If we will just say, stop saying offensive things from the Bible and become a Jesusless bunch of do-gooders, he will call off the dogs. But although do-goodism and volunteerism are about action, they are not necessarily love in action, at least not as we understand love. Because it is not born of a desire to worship God and to be like Him and to share Him with others. I rather suspect there are so many wonderful people here in the county who are volunteering and being helpful to other people that when we talk about the work we're doing in the church, they go, yeah, I also volunteer somewhere. And the conversation stops there. Is there anything substantively different between what we are trying to do and all the other people who are trying to be a blessing and a help in our community? What is it different about what the church is up to? It's a tough question. Jesus was not content to put band-aids over the gaping wound of mankind's brokenness. And his ultimate aim was not to bring temporary healing or to lessen our earthly afflictions, but to transform us in the midst of all this brokenness and ultimately to deliver us out of it. Do you guys remember that scene, the very uh, uncomfortable scene for me in the book of John? We studied this some time ago, where Jesus healed the man by the pool of Bethesda. The place was absolutely chock full of people who were, had ailments of various sorts. And Jesus goes in there and he heals this man. Remember he says, I'm here because uh, this angel comes down and dips the water and if I can be the first one into the pool, all this stuff. You might remember the story. If not, look it up. <laughs> it's a great story. And Jesus heals this man, and then it says he exited quickly because there were lots of people in the place who were desperate and broken and sick who would want a healing. And you have to ask the question, well, why did he leave then? (laughs) It would make sense if there's lots of people there who need help that Jesus wouldn't heal one and then quickly exit because there was going to be a riot. Everybody would want healing. Why wouldn't he just heal everyone? It's a difficult question, very difficult. The truth is, though, that Jesus found the man later in the temple, and he said, told the man to repent of his sins or worse would happen to him. 
Tell me, what could be worse than being laid up in that culture at that time for over 30 years? God's wrath is. Jesus was most interested in this man's soul. His effort to alleviate his earthly suffering had as its ultimate aim a desire to give him the righteousness of Christ. He was not content to simply mitigate or slightly alleviate his earthly sufferings. He came the first time to die for our sins, and he's coming back a second time to judge the earth for their sins. And he did not want to heal this man of his earthly affliction, but still leave him in a place where he was going to be underneath God's wrath. This is very important for us to see because, again, Jesus is the target at which we're pointing our lives and all of our efforts to be a blessing and a help to our neighbors, to heal broken families, to provide for the poor, to assist those in distress and be a blessing and a help to people who are just limping along. It has to have as its ultimate aim a desire to give them the good thing of Jesus, the gospel. Our goal is not to make people more comfortable in their state of separation from God, but rather to make disciples, to give people God, and to see them transformed by the Holy Spirit in the midst of all this brokenness and ultimately be delivered out of it into, into paradise, into salvation, into heaven. The thing I want you to see, loving God, loving others, love in action is this. People who embrace one or two of these ideas, but not all three together, they might look outwardly kind of like a Christian. And when they speak, they might even sound a bit like one. But they cannot truly be called a disciple of Jesus, because what is a disciple of Jesus? It's a sincere, from-the-heart imitator of Jesus. And Jesus held all three of these things together at once. It's critically important. It's irreducibly complex. And so although such a person might be doing a fairly good imitation of a Christian, they are not imitating Jesus very well. Loving God, loving others, love in action. That's who we must strive to be as a people here at State Road. Now, that is a fairly lengthy bit of introductory review here at the front end of our message this morning, and I know that I've already been talking for a while, and we haven't even gotten to the scripture we're going to be studying this morning yet, and I can begin to feel waves of worry coming off of you, (laughs) that this is going to turn into like a hostage situation with me up here and you guys just like, when are we getting out of here? I can, I can start to people, feel it. You know, people don't call me old filibuster for nothing. Well, let me put you at ease. It's not going to be. Here's the goal for this morning. In order to reacquaint ourselves with these three statements that really are, guys, just so central to our disciple being and disciple making efforts here at State Road, We're going to be spending a number of Sundays in the book of 1 John. And I'm not going to try and do all of it this morning, of course. All I want to do this morning is issue you a challenge. I'll close with that here in just a minute. And I want to provide a broad, very broad overview of what John is saying in this short book. We're going to take in the view here very quickly from 30,000 feet 
And in the Sundays that follow, we'll be coming back to land and explore portions in a more close-up way. Okay? Does that sound like a deal? Guys, I only have like this much left. We're almost there. <laughs> Don't worry. Here's the, big of, here's the big idea of 1 John. It says in chapter 4, we find this statement about God. As he is, so also are we in this world. Let me read for you just a few passages to help you see what I mean. In 1 John 4, 8, it says this, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then in verses 16 through 17, it says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. And then verse, four, uh, verse 19 of chapter 4, it says this, We love because he first loved us. Guys, this book, from beginning to end, is all about loving God, loving others, and love in action. And one of the things that really strikes me about the book of 1 John, which I probably read four or five times this past week, um, it's a short book. You can do it very easily. I'm guessing in under, if you're an average reader like, like me, you could probably do it in 10, 10 minutes or so, read the whole thing. But the book of 1 John is chock-a-block full of what I call diagnostic language, which is a big, intimidating kind of sounding word. I don't mean to make it that way. Uh, but what I mean is this. You know, when I was a police officer... One night I was working, and I got a radio from Fish and Game. I worked in the city. Fish and Game obviously works out where Fish and Game are. <laughs> but they called me to ask, come assist them on something they had going on, which was very unusual. This is the only time in the years I worked as a police officer that that scenario ever happened. I rolled up, and the, state, the Fish and Game guy explained to me that they had been investigating an area where people had been jacklighting deer, you know, where they go out with a high-powered flashlight, and they shine it in the deer's eyes, and they shoot them. They'd heard reports this was happening, so they'd been watching a certain field, and they saw a pickup truck roll in next to the field, kill the lights, and a guy had been sitting there for a long time. So after waiting a while, they decided to approach the truck, and when they did, they found a, on the front console of the truck a pane of glass with a line of white powder on it. Now this was outside of their field of experience. They were fishing game guys. They didn't work much with drug uh, investigations. And so they called me to come and help them. What do we do with this? Now I said we need to run a diagnostic test on it. I, I had been issued a little bag, a plastic bag, and there's a glass capsule, and you took a substance of the drug and you put it in there, you broke the capsule, and if it turned a certain color, then you knew that it was an illegal substance. I said, what did the guy say about it? And they said, he said it's Tylenol. <laughs> like, come on, ridiculous. And I felt the same way. I took that drug, whatever the white powder was, I dumped it in the baggie, I broke the capsule, I flicked it with my finger, it didn't change color. I said, I don't know what it is, but this sure doesn't look kosher. I recommend you take it and send it to the state crime lab. They can do it, more advanced testing on it. And that's what they did. And it came back as over-the-counter acetaminophen. He, 
He was snorting his Tylenol, guys. I'm not making that up. It's a true story. Turns out he just had trouble swallowing pills. And so he had, it was easier for him to snort Tylenol than swallow a pill. Kids, don't try this at home. (laughs) Now, that goes to show the purpose why diagnostic tests exist. If you were a police officer and you saw white powder in a line on a pane of glass in a sketchy-looking pickup truck, what would you think? It looks an awful lot like something bad going on. But when we run the diagnostic test, the guy just had a headache. (laughs) But you can't see the difference necessarily unless you run a diagnostic test. There are look-alikes. Sometimes it's difficult to discern reality from what appears to be. And so what 1 John does is he fills this book from beginning to end with diagnostic language. Very helpful, practical ways that you can run a diagnostic on your own heart. Um, A little bit word of warning, these diagnostic tools are not helpful in the least when you're sizing up someone else (laughs) at all. These are meant by by your God. They are given to you to do an internal review on yourself, an inventory, as it were. Lots of these verses in 1 John begin like this. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. By this we know that he abides in us. By this you know the Spirit of God. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. By this we know that we love the children of God. By this we know that we have come to know him. By this we may know that we are in him. Diagnostic, 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 over and over and over again. Elsewhere, he provides some very helpful tests to run on our hearts. Here's just one of many examples. I could point out many, but here's one in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. John writes, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. That's diagnostic language. And here's the challenge I want to give to you this week. If you have not already, I put this in the midweek email, but I'll put it out there in front of you again. I want all of us as a church to read 1 John this week. Again, it's not a huge book. You can work it in one chapter. There's five chapters. You can do a chapter a day if you want. You could do it all in one sitting. But when I did that, uh, what I want you to do as you read it, though, is mark or otherwise indicate on a separate piece of paper. If you're not in the habit of marking up your Bibles, I am. I just, my Bible looks like a crime scene. There's just all kinds of stuff in there. You can put it on another sheet of paper if you want, whatever. But as you go through, I want you to somehow mark where you find diagnostic language. There's a bunch of it in there. And when I did that, I collected those. I copied and pasted them all onto a sheet of paper, and then I reorganized them by group. And what I found is three, basically three diagnostic tests that 1 John repeats in different language and in different ways, over and over and over again. And the first is this. In the book of 1 John, he is very concerned that people have a right understanding of who God is. When we say that God is love, 
God has demonstrated for us what love looks like in its outworking. He is defined for us by his, what he has done for us, what love is. And so one of the tests that John really wants to confront people with is, do you have a right understanding of God? Would you agree with this statement? If you can make this statement and understand what it means, that's a good, that's a good sign. For example, in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, he says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. We have come to know and to believe certain things. This is a diagnostic test. Do you know? Do you believe? This is where it has to begin. Because God is love. And if we are to love God and love others and love actively like God did, if we are to be in this world as he is, we must possess in our minds a right understanding of him. This is the first diagnostic test that John will run over and over and over again. Every time you find in the book of 1 John, by this we know, he is talking about knowledge. He is talking about right understanding. He is talking about arriving at a correct view of the God who is love that will then inform our own ability to be like him. The second diagnostic test that he will run has to do with obedience to the commands of God. You will just find these kind of uh, diagnostic tests peppered throughout the epistle of 1 John. He says things like this, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. And what I want you to see, what we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks, is this. Obedience to God's commands is one of the very critically important ways we have of saying to God, I love who you are. I love who you are. Because as we've talked about on previous Sundays, God's commands are not arbitrary, are they? He didn't pull out of a hat and say, adultery is a sin, because it's random. No, that's a sin, why? Because God is faithful. Tell me, why is lying a sin? It's not random, it's not pulled out of a hat, it's not arbitrary. Lying is a sin because God is truth. All that is right and good agrees with who God is, and all that is classified as sin, wrong, bad, wicked, disagrees with who God is. And so when we keep his commands, we are actually saying, I love how you are. I love who you are. Because the commands reflect the very character and nature of God. How you feel about the commands of God is how you feel about God. This is a true statement, because the commands are a reflection of who he is. All the thou shalts are a positive statement about who God is, and all of the thou shalt nots are like an inverse negative reflection of who he is. That's who he's not. And so when I love his commands, I am actually saying to him, I love who you are, and I want to be like you. Imitation is not only the sincerest form of flattery, it is the sincerest form of worship. So that's really important to John. There's lots of these diagnostic tests. Do you love the commands 
of God. And the third one, what John Stott uh, calls the social test, is this, that our love for God finds practical outward expression in our love for others, specifically, and first and foremost, the love for our fellow believers, not to the exclusion of a love for the lost, but as a matter of first importance. For example, in chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, it says this, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. There it is. If you love God, you love his people. You love. You love others. It's a diagnostic test. So here's what I want us to see. This is the connection. This is what binds it all together in the book of 1 John. Possessing a right understanding of who God is. And not only seeing and believing the truth of who God is, but loving the truth of it, (laughs) will find expression in a love for others, an active love, and by expressing love back to God by obedience, by saying to him, I just love who you are. And that's why I'm rejecting all this nastiness that doesn't look a thing like you. It really and truly is all about loving God loving others, and love in action. And that's what we're going to be talking about over the coming weeks. And one of the reasons I'm really excited to be having this conversation now, this past week I was able to sit down and meet with some people who are going to be involved in our small group ministries. And we're talking about hide and seek club. We're talking about being a part of the tabernacle project. We've always got stuff going on, opportunities to love actively, to love others. Now, this is our much bigger ideas in their outworking than just simply saying, yeah, I'll be a part of the hide-and-seek team, or just saying, yes, I'll sign up for a small group, or yes, I'll help with the tabernacle project so that that can be a continued tool for reaching people for the gospel going forward. There's, There's lots of ways to meaningfully engage with the truth that we are to be lovers of God, lovers of others, and lovers in action. But what I challenge you is this. Those are good places to start. Those are great places to start. It's a bigger vision than just those things, but why not start moving in that direction now? In the coming weeks, we're going to begin challenging people to be a part of a smaller group. Uh, This is good. This is great that we gather this way. This is important and biblical, but there is another step, which I think the Bible would call us to be a part of, to know and be known in a smaller setting, a place where there's greater accountability, where there's mutuality and sharing of prayer requests and shared burdens. Small groups are going to begin flourishing here in just a matter of a little over a month. And I'd encourage you to be a part of that. As different service opportunities come up, let's grab those. Let's, let's use our gifts in service to the kingdom. And I'm excited to begin having this conversation again for us as a church. Uh, Let's pray, and as I pray, I'd invite the worship team to come up, and then we'll take communion together. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so, so much for State Road Advent Christian Church. God, what a blessing you have been to me through these people. God, since arriving here among my friends, my brothers and sisters here at State Road, I have been helped and encouraged towards you. And Father, I'm excited for another season of fruitful ministry here at the church. Father, I'm excited to see 
people grow as lovers of you and as lovers of others and as people who don't just love in word but in deed and in truth. Father, I thank you, Lord, for showing us the way, for giving us a picture on the cross of what love is. And God, I pray, Lord, that that would shape us, really and truly. God, that you would continue that work of pursuing us, perfecting us, between now and the day when Jesus comes back. God, I pray, Lord, that you would wield this church against the enemy. God, that you would use this church to aggressively move against the powers of darkness in the unseen realm. That you would use State Road Advent Christian Church to bring in a harvest of lost souls, people brought out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son who you love. God, please use us for these things. God, we're so glad to be yours. Draw us deeper into you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.